You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, everybody doing okay this morning? All right, Mark chapter 8 is where we are, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, that would be great. Um, and it would really serve you to have a Bible out and open on your lap or, or uh, your phone out, whatever that is that you're looking at a Bible with, um, to Mark chapter 8, so you can follow along and, uh, and read along with us. So as you're turning there, let me, uh, I need to take just a moment to cover just a little bit of quick family business um, for our church and uh, talk just for a second about the city. Now, if you are new to Stonegate, um, the city is a sort of um, online social sort of a site for churches. So I want to just describe really briefly some of how the city serves us as a church family. Um, part of what it does is it streamlines all of our communications. So like weekly, we are trying to get information to you that if, if you're part of this church family, you need to know and be aware of. And the city is how we do all of that communicating. Um, the city is how our ministries, if you have preschool or children or students um, that go to Stonegate and they're in our ministries, it is how we get information to you. So like if you're a, a preschooler or if you've got a preschool, not you being a preschooler, but if you're a parent of a preschooler, um, you're going to get like weekly a parental press type thing or one of our school age, um, if you're a parent of one of our school age kids. Um, You're going to get a parental press that just tees up discipleship in the home. It basically says, here's what we just covered. Here would be some good ways for you to think about reiterating this and teaching this in the context of your home. So those sort of things all come through the city. It's how our home groups communicate and coordinate with one another. All of those things are happening on the city. So it streamlines all of that into one place for us. But on the other side of uh, of the kind of the the world of what it does is it also serves kind of all of our back-end issues as a church. So it's how we track giving, how we track all all of those sorts of things. It serves as our database for our church. So if we need to get in touch with you and we need like a phone number or an address, any of those sort of, your email, the city is how we find all of that. So as a church, it's really, really, really important for us that you are in with us on that, 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 you're, that you're in on the whole city and how, how we're using this thing. So in light of that, I just want to take a moment to encourage you to do uh, two things. One is to make sure you have an account on the city. Now that's like you personally, not like you as a family. That, that you personally have an account, that each of you and your family um, have one. And then secondly, that you'll make sure all of your content is up to date. So your email address, your phone number, your home address, that all of those things are up to date. Without that, we, we have a really hard time of keeping track. If it's not up to date, we have a really hard time of keeping track with, with our church family. And so if you'll do that, that would be wonderful. And if even throw a bone at us if you would like. If you would upload a picture of like your face so we can put a name with the face on the city, that would also help the people in your church family know who you are, all that good stuff. So if you'll do that, that would be wonderful. Now let me just take one quick second to say this. Um, in any group of people like this, there's, there's two categories, right? Category number one are the rule followers. And can I just say thank you if that's you? <laughs> to all of our rule followers out there, thank you for being easy. I just, want to, I just want you to hear that and know that, that you are so appreciated. Now to you non-rule followers. You are not so easy. And so let, let me just say this to the non-rule followers. I just want to ask you to check your heart on that. It's not like we're asking to give five pints of blood and like half your platelet. You know what I'm saying? All we're saying is just like we want you in the flow of communication within our church family. And so in light of that, I just want to, especially to our non-rule followers, I just want to make sure like when you go home tonight that you would check your heart and that you would jump into that. That would really help, um, help us. And then lastly, uh, let me say this about the city. 
uh, all of our 2013 giving records that you're going to need for taxes and all that, we don't mail those to our church family. Those are literally three clicks away on the city. So we posted last week directions on how to, uh, to get those, download those, print those for your records, all of that good stuff. So all of that is there for you on the city, three clicks away, um, have at it. So all that is, is there, directions, all that good stuff. Okay, so with that said, we are to uh, Mark 8. Now let me, let me preface this text by um, telling you one of the conversations I periodically um, have with people is really a question that they'll ask me. It'll be a question that goes something like this. Um, what, what is like your heart for Stonegate? Like what, and it's kind of like a vision and like where are you going question, what do we do in question, like that sort of a, tell me, tell me about your heart for Stonegate. And like literally we could talk for days about that. The tentacles go in a lot of different ways and directions. But here's one of the first things I always say in response to that question on kind of the, what, what are we doing as a church, that thing. And th- this is the way I always respond to that first. I say that we are a place that wants to make disciples. That's what we're trying to do. We are trying really hard and spending a lot of time and energy and effort and getting into the grit of people's lives to connect their life to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church family, that is what we are trying to do is make disciples. Now, then I clarify this. I clarify it with two statements, that we want to make more disciples and we want to make better disciples. We want to do both of those things. So making disciples means more disciples and better. Not, not one or the other, but both of those. More disciples means we want people meeting Jesus. We want people going from death to life, eternal condemnation to eternal commendation before God, alienation to reconciliation. We want people to be doing that around here. So we want to make more disciples, but we also want to make better disciples. We want people to actually grow up in Jesus, mature in Jesus. We want people living and walking and pursuing Jesus. We want both of those two things. A church, like God is glorified in a church that's doing one, right? Either making, you know, more disciples or better disciples. But God is more glorified in a church that's doing both of those. God is more glorified in a church that is both making more disciples and better disciples. And we want to be doing both of those. So we don't just want to be a church that makes more disciples. Like people like come in and they meet Jesus, but then they have to go some other place to, to like grow up in Jesus. We don't want to be a church that just does one of those. We want to do both, more and better. We actually want to be a place where people can come in and like grow up, learn what it looks like to live in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, listen to this, in every area of their life. We really want that to happen. And here's the reason that is so important that we are both of those. People meeting Jesus and people growing up in Jesus, being discipled, like like growing up and and what it means to live in light of who Jesus is in every area of their life. That is important because the church is not the only one discipling. We're all aware of that, right? The church is not the only one teaching people how to live in every area of their life. The culture is also discipling. The culture is also teaching how you should parent. How you should do your money, what sort of ambitions you should have for your life, what sort of, sort of desires you should have for your life, what sort of goals you should set for your life, what sort of pursuits you should have in your life, what are you going to press hard after? The culture is equally committed to discipleship. Like it is teaching us something about that. And this is why it's so important for the church to be really proactive in this. And, and this is, by the way, why Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world. 
Like the, the world is discipling. The world is showing you how it is that you should live. It's trying to teach you how it is that you should live. And Paul's saying, listen, don't be conformed to that. The, the ways of the world, like the, the world's desires for you, its ambitions for you, its hopes for you are much different than Jesus's. And it produces a much different sort of a life. I love how one pastor said this. He said, we're all faced with the constant temptation to lick our fingers and hold and hold them up to the winds of our culture and say, teach me how I should live. So that's parenting, that's sex, that's marriage, that's money, that's in all of those different areas. We're constantly tempted with that, to just take in what the world is, is, is teaching us. But instead of holding them up, he goes on to say, but instead of holding them up to the winds of culture, a Christian holds them up to the winds of Jesus and says, what do you say? You, you teach me how I should live in every area of my life. Now, in light of that, that want and that desire for our church family, I think this passage is helpful. It's not going to say everything there is to say about what it means to grow as a disciple of Jesus, but it does say a few really important things. Namely, it clarifies our expectations on what life with Jesus looks like. It's going to show us what life with Jesus looks like. Now, let me give this warning, and then we're going to jump straight into it. Um, here's the warning that needs to be attached to this passage. These are hard words. They don't go down real easily, right? So this is the passage that, that brings some really difficult things from Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you are exploring Jesus, you're investigating the claims of Jesus. Is he legit? Not. Am I going to commit to this or not? Like, am I in or out? Where am I? I think you picked a great morning to be here. And here's why. I can't think of a better place for you to be if you are exploring Jesus than among a group of people who are taking the words of Jesus, especially the hard ones, seriously. I can't think of a better place for you to be. The worst place for you to be is in a group of people who are not taking the words of Jesus seriously, who kind of censor Jesus, who kind of strain out all the things they don't want to hear from Jesus and just give you the things that you do want to hear. I can't think of a worse place for you to be than that because here's the problem. If you're among a group of people who don't take the words of Jesus seriously and you commit to Jesus, here's what you're going to find. You committed to a mythological Jesus. A Jesus that somebody just made up and said, here, take him. So it's really important that you get the full-on version. And in this passage, you're going to see the real Jesus talking about what he has done on your behalf and what it means to follow this real Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to pursue this real Jesus. And for those who claim the name of Jesus in the room, like you would say you're a son or daughter of God, this is a great passage to ask this question about your life. Am I living as a disciple? Am I actually living as a disciple of Jesus? It's going to be a great just opportunity for you to ask that question. Okay, so here we go. Um, I, here's how I'm going to kind of arrange this passage. It's kind of a classic outline for it. It's going to kind of give us a who of discipleship, a what of discipleship, and a why of discipleship. So let me kind of work down through these three um, kind of headings here. So first thing we're going to see is the who of discipleship. We're going to start in verse 27. Now we covered this passage, uh, specifically 27 through 30, uh, a few weeks ago, back before Christmas. So I just want to read this again and point out a couple of things for you. The who of discipleship. Starting in verse 27, Mark 8, Jesus or it says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way back, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Now, of all the, you know, of all the questions you're going to ask and answer in your life, this is at the top of the most important question list. This is it. 
This, this question right here determines eternal commendation or eternal condemnation. How you answer this question is that important. And you, I just want you to notice how, how Jesus phrases this question. He is not ultimately concerned about what the crowds say about it. He's ultimately concerned about what you say about this question. About how you answer that. It's a personal question. And the way the Greek is arranged, that you is at the front of the sentence emphasizing, I want you to answer this question. I'm concerned about how you answer it. So it's personal. It's not a your pastor question, your friend question, that model Christian down the road. It's, it's a question for you. This is the most important question you will ever answer. And notice how Peter answers it. You are the Christ. Peter nails it. I mean, he absolutely drills this question. He, he is absolutely correct in the content of his answer. Now, so in, in, in saying he is the Christ, he is saying that he is the Redeemer. He is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to rescue his people. That, that's who Jesus is. Now, he is absolutely correct on the content, but here is the problem Peter had. He was not clear on what sort of a Christ this would be, on what sort of a Redeemer this was going to be. So Peter, and along with like every other first century Jewish man or woman, would have thought this about the Redeemer. This is going to be the one sent from God. He's going to come, and here's what this Redeemer is going to do. He's going to set everything right, and he's going to start with that Roman army right over there that's oppressing us. He's going to start with them. He's going to totally kill and conquer all of those people, and he's going to return the Jewish people to kind of this place of power and prominence. This is what the Redeemer and Rescuer, this Messiah, that's the sort of Messiah he's going to be. And, and so Jesus has to re-clarify, mm, that's not the sort of Messiah I'm going to be. So, so Peter's content is correct, but now Jesus has to clarify the sort, the kind of Messiah, the kind of Christ that he would be. So look at verse 31. Here's the clarification. Peter, I'm not going to be that picture. I'm not going to be what you just described. Here's what I'm going to be. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man... Now that Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite titles. It goes all the way back to Daniel 7. It's this exalted, powerful person. That, that, that's son of man language. So you've got this exalted, powerful Christ. And here's what he says about himself. The son of man must. Now, if you're just, if you're an underliner or a highlighter in your Bible, that would be a good one to underline or highlight, the word must. And he must do these four things. He must suffer many things and be rejected. So suffer is one, many things, and be rejected. That's number two, by the elders and chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed. And after three days, here's the fourth one, rise again. Verse 32, and he said these things plainly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It is a short fall from hero to zero, isn't it? Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get, get behind me, Satan. You are thinking in a way that is hindering what it is that God wants to do in the world. What it is that I, like, the purpose of my life, what I've been sent to do. You're hindering that. So, so Jesus is clarifying that he is not the sort of Messiah, the sort of Christ that Peter expected. Peter expected this conquering sort of military hero, and Jesus is saying, that's not who I am. I am the Christ. You are right in that, but I am a different sort of a Christ. I'm a different sort of redeemer and rescuer. I'm the sort of redeemer who is going to actually allow myself to be humiliated, rejected, killed on a cross, and who will rise from the dead on the third day. That's the sort of, that, that's the sort of, 
Messiah, I am. Why? Not to be your, not to kind of kill and conquer your, your temporal enemy of Rome, but to kill and conquer your eternal enemy of Satan, sin, and death. That's why. Because that's the biggest issue. So, so this word must, I want to redirect your attention to verse 31 and this word must. That he must do these four things. Now that word must is walking us into two things. It's teaching us two things. First of all, it's teaching us about the life and ministry and purpose of Jesus. This is what he came to do. He's saying that, that from eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made disagreement. There would be a time when the Son of God, Jesus, would come and live and die, be, be crucified. That, that, that was eternally, eternity past. He must do that. It's the purpose of his life and ministry. But it's not just teaching us about Jesus. It's also teaching us something about ourselves. Namely, it is showing us the problem of our sin before God. That the reason Jesus must do this is because God is holy. The, the, reason, the, the reason Jesus must do this is because we have sinned and rebelled against that holy God. And because God is holy and just, God is storing up a mountain of wrath over our rebellion, over our sin against him. And, and the reason Jesus must die is because you and I all need a substitute. We need a Savior who has lived a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling the commands of God, who will stand in our place on the cross absorbing all of God's anger and wrath for our sin. We need a Savior like that who will one day rise from the dead, showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. It is showing us that you and I are all in need of that sort of a Savior. One who will rescue us from our greatest problem of sin before God. One who can reconcile us back to God from Father. That's the sort of thing we need. So it's not just showing us the, the life and purpose of, of Jesus. It's showing you and I, it's making us aware, every one of us in the room, of our greatest need. Our greatest need is someone to deal with the problem of our sin. Now, and here is the good news of the, the, the Bible. Is if you keep reading in Mark, Mark or Jesus announces what he's come to do in, in this passage. And then you keep reading and here's the good news of Mark. This is why it's called the gospel of Mark, the good news of Mark. Jesus actually did that. He actually allowed himself to suffer willingly subjected himself to it. He allowed himself to be rejected. He allowed himself to be killed. He willingly took the cross and he rose from the dead on the third day so that, so that your problem of sin and my problem of sin could be dealt with. He's announcing it here and the rest of the gospel tells us that he actually did it. That there is a way back to reconciliation with God. And, and can we all just take a moment to see this is where discipleship begins. It begins with knowing that good news about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and us responding appropriately to it. This is where it starts. It starts with us answering the question, who is this man Jesus? What has he done? And what does that mean for me now? This is where it starts. And here's what I love about our church family. There have been many of us in the room who have responded rightly to that. Who we've We've grown in our awareness of who it is that Jesus is, what he has done, and we've submitted ourselves to Jesus. We've responded appropriately. Like, like Peter, we have said, you are the Christ, and we've given our life to him. And, and for some of us in the room, you've even been baptized here. It's been one of the, like the, the greatest just moments of watching those, those things go down within our church family. And then there's others in the room who, who the truth is, you need to respond appropriately. Like, like there's still a need in your life to respond appropriately to who Jesus is and what he has done. 
There's still a need to put your faith in Jesus, to trust Jesus to be your Savior, and to allow Him to be your Lord, right? There's still this need to trust Him in that. So we just pray today that this would be the starting point for all of us in the room. Some of us would be reminded of this starting point, others that this would be your starting point. The who of discipleship. Now, once you understand Messiahship, who Jesus is and what he has done, then you can start to understand the what of discipleship. So, so next we get the what. So this is, this is what Jesus has done. He has suffered. He is rejected. He is killed. He rose from the dead. Now we can start to understand what it looks like to follow that Jesus, that sort of a Christ, that sort of a Messiah. So this is where we get to verse 34. And this is where the words get hard. Verse 34 says this. And calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, and he tells them three things. Here's what coming after me means. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, let me just start by, by pointing out that word anyone. This is not like for a special set of Christians. This is not for like the model Christian. This is for all Christians. This is for all of God's followers. This is for everyone who says, I'm a son or daughter of God. This is what it means to enter into a relationship with Jesus. It means these things. This is the sort of life that not just some disciples live, that every one of his disciples live. So it's an anyone. It's an all. It's a... It's a Everyone who wants to come after Jesus, this is, this is how we come after him. This is, the, this is the what of a life with Jesus. And then he gives three things here. Let me just kind of run through these. He says, first of all, if you want to come after me, here's thing number one. Let him deny himself. Deny himself. That, that means to renounce yourself. That means to lay down all right and all authority to your life. This is the call on every disciple to, to renounce yourself. Now, let me just remind us all that we are being discipled by a culture too, not just by Jesus, right? And, and if you want to talk about how the culture is discipling us, this is like one of the primary ways. Our culture values personal freedom and personal fulfillment at the highest level, doesn't it? That we put the fulfillment of our own personal desires above everyone and everything else. If you get in the way of my personal freedom and desire, you now become the enemy and I have now declared war on you. That this is culture. At the highest value, like the highest value is you be happy regardless of what it costs you. Like, like you make sure your desires, all of them are met regardless this is the highest value of culture and right into the face of that sort of a culture. And listen, by the way, that is like, that seeps into you and I in ways that we are totally unaware of. Because one of the things about culture, it's like a fish in water. You don't know you're in water if you're a fish. It's just like normal for you, right? So it, it's such a part of our cultural just ethos that most of us aren't even aware that that same thing has seeped into us. That my number one aim is life is personal desires and personal freedom and the fulfillment of it. And if you get into the way of that, we're done. This, and, we, and listen, we could talk about the fallout of that for years. We could talk about it in terms of money. We could talk about it in terms of marriage and divorce. We could talk about it in the terms of all of those sorts of things. It's this elevation of our personal freedom and desire above everything else. And into that, Jesus says this, deny yourself. D deny yourself. 
Re renounce yourself. Let, let go of all rights to your life. Let, let go of the right to personal freedom, to personal, your little personal desire. You let go of all of those things. Renounce yourself. And listen, this is not just like a deny yourself some little things in life. It's not like a diet, right? Where you just say no to these five foods and then you're good. It's not that. He's not just saying deny yourself things. He's saying deny yourself. Like deny self, like renounce self. You've got to declare and renounce that you are not, you're no longer the owner of you. That no longer do your desires and your personal freedom rule you. No longer are they the authority over you. Now God is the authority over you. Jesus is the authority over you. You've got a new master and it's not your desires. It's, it's now actually Jesus. That, that's the new master of your life. He's saying deny yourself, renounce yourself, and, and, and now move over and run to Jesus as, as the new controlling force in your life. I, I love how one pastor said this. And I think this just helps kind of bring this down to like the level of our lives. He said the call to deny self, here's what it means, is that you have to take sides with Jesus against yourself. Now just think about that. This is what it feels like in life. That, that you have desires, and now you start to see that God has desires. And what denying yourself means is that now I'm no longer siding with me in the battle for these desires. I am siding with Jesus against me. It means that we're, we're siding with Jesus against ourselves, consistently, on a regular basis. Siding with Jesus against ourselves. If you want a picture of how this plays out in the Bible, I think the Garden of Gethsemane is a really good place to see it. So just think about what you have in the Garden of Gethsemane. What you have going on is Jesus looking at his father and he's praying to his father and he's saying, Father, will you please make this cup pass? I really don't want to do this. There is a desire difference. Jesus is here saying, I don't really want to do that. And God the Father is here saying, but yeah, this is, this is the plan. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, here's what you have Jesus doing. He says, not my will, but yours. In that moment, that is an expression of Jesus saying, I am siding with God the Father against me. It's him taking sides with God the Father and, and sides against himself. And listen, this is the painful path God has called us all to live on. Siding with God against our desires. I love what one pastor said. He went on to say this. If you aren't consistently feeling the pain of siding with the triune God against yourself, it likely means you're not in Jesus, right? I mean, like part of what it means to follow Jesus is that on a consistent basis, we are put in this predicament. Like Galatians 5 is playing itself out. We have the, the Spirit of God now in us giving us new desires, but the flesh in us, that old sinful nature, it's not completely gone. And so it rears up and it, and it screams and it, and it gives us a different set of desires. So you've got the spirit and, and the desires over here, the spirit and of God. And then you've got these desires of the flesh. And listen, part of what it means to be a Christian is we are doing war right there on the desire level. That we are siding against ourselves, against the flesh, and we are siding for Jesus. Now listen, that is like, that is like the, the, just the normal routine daily life of a follower of Jesus. I, I'll just tell you one of the, the thousands of ways it plays out for me. When I come home from work, can I just say the, the thing I want to do? When I come home after a long day of work, I want some me time. You know what I'm talking about? That, that means I want a long period of time of doing absolutely nothing. That's what I want. 
But then I walked in the door, and you know what confronts me as soon as I go through the door? Three kids and a wife who needs a break. And in that moment, can I tell you the, the battle going on? There is one side of me that says, heck with all of that, you go get what you want. And then the other side is the Spirit of God saying, no, this is time to give your life away to these people. That's what this time is for. And that is like, a, I mean, if you're a husband, you know that battle. You know what that feels like. And part of what it means to be a disciple is that we are consistently taking sides against ourselves and with God in those moments. The same would be true of money. The same would be true of our, just our normal ethics, right? Like how we deal with sex and lust and all of these sorts of things that we are consistently siding against ourselves and we're siding with God in our life. This is what it means to deny self. Now let me just throw this last little uh, reminder in here and then we'll go to the next one. But let me just remind you that this is a grace from God. This calling is not just like God slapping us over the head. This is a grace from God. Do you know like the thing that can ruin your life sooner than anything else? You know what that thing is? You. And you know what this call from God on our life is doing? This is why it's grace. It's rescuing you from you. It's rescuing you from you. It's rescuing you from imploding in your own little selfish world where you can't see past yourself to anyone else. It's rescuing you from that, from wrecking your life on the rocks of your own desires. So he says, if you want to come after me, this is what it means to live as a disciple. It means to deny self. And then he says this. If you want to come after me, it means you deny self and that you take up your cross. Do you see that in verse 34? So let me kind of work at this from two different ways. I think what he's saying, he says, take up your cross, is he means this. Taking up your cross means that we have fully surrendered our future to Jesus. That our future, that our life is fully surrendered to, G, uh, to Jesus. Now this is, you see this in, in what the interaction with Peter here in this passage. See, Peter, when he looked down the road, his life was tied up in the life of Jesus. And when he looked down the road, this is what Peter saw. He saw a savior, a redeemer, a rescuer who would set everything right, wipe Rome off the face, you know, face of the planet and restore Jews to their prominence, right? This is what he saw. And his life was tied up in that. That, that sort of a Jesus meant really good things for him too, right? And, and so this is what he saw. When he looked down the road, he had a very firm picture of, of, of the future. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes along and says, that is not the plan for the future. You're seeing the future all wrong, Peter. The future actually looks like this. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to rise from the dead. That's what the future looks like. And in that moment, here is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is looking at Peter and saying, Peter, you're going to have to lay your agenda for your future down and pick up mine. Part of what it means to take up your cross is that your agendas for your life now die and Jesus has come to life. P Peter, you're going to have to lay yours down, and you're going to have to pick mine up. It's, it's, it's Jesus looking at Peter and saying, from, from this point forward, your agendas, your plans, your hopes for your life, they all have to be submitted to me. It, it, discipleship is not about me taking your dreams and making them come to fruition. It's not about you using me to accomplish your dreams, Peter. It is about you submitting your dreams to me and walking into my dreams for you. That this is the life of a disciple. 
Our agendas are in an open hand. God's agendas for our life are now in a closed hand. This is the life of discipleship. This is the life with Jesus. It's laying down all of our preferred pictures of the future. All of the things we envision for our life, it's putting all of those in an open hand and saying, God, ultimately my, my future is in your hands. And ultimately from this point forward, I want your agenda for my life, not my agenda for my life. This is, this is what it means when he says, take up your cross. And let me just clarify that that doesn't mean that all dreams in our life should die, right? God wants us to be dreamers. If we're praying to God and we're living as a son or daughter of God, God is going to consistently give us huge dreams for the kingdom of God. So, so God wants us to be a dreamer. Stonegate would not exist apart from that, right? But here's the point. All of our dreams for our life, all of our preferred pictures for our life, all of the things, when we look down the road, the things we see, all of those things go in an open hand before God. All of them are submitted to God, yielded to God. When we're saying to, to God in all of those things, God, we're submitting our expectations of what our life will be. We're submitting all of those things to you. Our plans, all of those things are submitted to you. It, it's been funny. This for me has become like a reality over the last few weeks. Uh, Laura and I, this last week, started the process towards fostering and adoption, that whole road. So we were in our first foster to adopt class. And by the way, those are going to be held at the Stonegate office on Monday nights. If anybody wants to join, feel free, let us know, and you can come along with us in that. But uh, so we're in our first class, and here's kind of the, one of the big things they're trying to communicate. That they walked us through why it is that so many people who come into the foster system, adoption, why so many bail so quickly. And here was their answer to that. The reason that happens so often is because people come in with their preconceived ideas, and those preconceived ideas get shattered in moments. That they come in with their agenda, but it doesn't go according to their agenda. And as soon as it doesn't go according to their agenda, they bail, they, they walk out. And, and here was their encouragement for everyone starting this, this process down this road. Is the first thing you have to do is get before God and let go of your preconceived ideas for your life. You've got to let go of your agendas for your life, your, your vision of the future. And then it was so interesting just in that moment listening to that. It gave me just enough space to reflect on this. I have a really clear picture of what I see down the road in all this. And that's a really ideal picture. And I could just feel this internal wrestling match of God, like the Spirit of God coming and saying, you better open up your hand to that. You need to yield there. You need to submit all of that to me. And that is like a microcosm of the daily life of a Christian. Is we are constantly submitting all of our future hopes, dreams, visions, our expectations. They are constantly submitted to Jesus. So, so part of what taking up the cross means is that we are fully surrendering our future. And on the back end of that, here's what I would say it means. It means that especially when his agenda includes suffering. So it's, it's a fully submitted future, especially when it doesn't go according to plan. Especially when that agenda includes suffering. Especially then. I mean, think about what the cross means, right? I mean, we've kind of got a romanticized view of the cross now because we don't see people killed and tortured on it. But if you were a first century person and, and somebody came to you and said, take up your cross, you know exactly what that means. You know that that means suffering, that means rejection, that means ridicule, that means insult, that means pain, that means all of those things. So part of what Jesus is saying here is taking up the cross and following me means that that, that road that I walk of pain, rejection, suffering, that that's going to be your road too. 
that that needs to factor into your expectations of your life. The part of what this is going to mean for you on, on the path of following Jesus is there's going to be thorns along that path. There's going to be dangers along that path. There's going to be pain along that path. That the part of what following Jesus means is that we are going to walk into suffering. That that's a part of what life with Jesus is like. Now here's the good news in all of that. Here, here's the grace in all of that is aren't we grateful that we have a God who dreams better and sets better agendas for our life than we ever could? See, this is not a God who is saying, let me ruin your life. This is a God saying, hey, if you'll just let go of your life, I'll give, I'll give you life. If you'll just let go of the control of your life, I'll walk you into all that I dream for you. And the good news of God is that God's a better dreamer. God sets better agendas. Agendas that we would never set for our life, God will set those to accomplish things that we could never accomplish in our life. To do things in us that we could never do on our own. And then he says this, he says, follow me. He says, follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now just notice the position there. The position of following is behind Jesus, not in front of Jesus, not beside Jesus. Following means God sets the agenda and we get in align with, you know, alignment with that agenda. That he sets the course and we respond appropriately. Following God does not mean that we are in front of God, directing God like, okay, God, I can, you can take that step now. You, you can now take that step. That's not the, that's not the life of a Christian. That the life of a disciple is behind Jesus. We're not directing Jesus. Jesus is directing us. Now, if I were to summarize all of that, deny self, take up your cross, and follow me, I can put it in like a metaphor. I'm going to use this, this little kind of picture over here. Essentially what Jesus is saying in this life of a disciple is that it means that every area of your life is submitted to me. Every area of your life is in me. Every area of your life is following me. I am in every single area. There are no compartments to your life. Now that walks us into one of all of our main problems, right? That we all have these compartmentalized lives. So I think this would be a picture of how most of our lives look. So if you just kind of lay out our life, and we'll just say if you're a Christian, it might look like this. So you've got Jesus over here. So this is the Jesus little portion of your life. And maybe you love Jesus. You're all in. You're going to come. You're going to have your Bible. You're going to do all of those sort of things. You're going to serve. I, you, you would say, man, I, I love Jesus. I'm in on the Jesus thing. But, but it's in a clearly defined little cup in your life, a clearly defined little compartment. And then you've got this little cup. And this is like your family life. I mean, you love your family, but you're just like, your family life is all right there. There's no spillover. There's no, there's no kind of melding in to all of these parts of your life. And then you've got your hobbies, and that's in a clearly defined part of your life. And then you've got work, and that's in a really clearly defined part of your life. Like, Jesus does not make his way over into work and how that goes. And then you've got money, and it's in a clearly defined little section of your life. Jesus does not affect how you operate with money, how you deal with money. So we've got all of these little compartments. And Jesus is in our life. He's just not all of our life. Are we seeing that? That he's in it. He's just not all of it. And this is what the call of discipleship means and looks like in all of our life. It's taking all of these little components, like family, like our work. It's taking all of these things like, like our money, like our ethics, like our sexuality, it's taking all of these components like this and dumping them all into one big bucket called our life. And then it's taking Jesus and dumping him right into the middle of all of those things. 
So, so that now it's no longer like these little compartments that make up our life. It's one Jesus in all of our life. He's no longer just like this little part. He is our life. This is the call of what it means to be a disciple. This is like life with Jesus. It's Jesus saturating, Jesus soaking every little part, every little piece of who we are. That in every area of our life, we are living in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This is, this is what it means to live life with God, to grow up as a disciple. And now let me just finish with this and then we'll be done. He, he walks us into the why of discipleship. This is what it looks like. It's submitting all of our life. It's not just Jesus as a part of our life. It's Jesus as our life. The whole thing. He affects every single thing that we're doing. And maybe that would just be a good moment for you to ask yourself, does Jesus affect everything for you? I mean, everything. Like thought life, your work, your family, how you think about your money, how you think about generosity, how you think about the future plans for your life. Does he affect everything? And then he gives us the why. Now, when I read about the what of discipleship in verse 34, I would be the first to admit that it's like, wow, that, that sounds really difficult. And, and so Jesus gives us some, some whys to that. Why is it worth that painful road? And just read along here with me. And all of these are like, you'll see that they start with the word for. That indicates purpose. So he's telling us why. What, what's the purpose of this command to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him? It starts in verse 35. Purpose. For, whatever would save, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Can I just read that one more time? And man, I'm just going to pray that the Spirit of God would just, man, allow this to land appropriately on each of our hearts. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You know, in the end, there are only two ways to live. You can live for yourself now. Not, not denying self, but living for yourself. Your, yourself rules. Your personal freedom, your personal desires, they are the authority and they rule your life. You, you can live that way now, and in the end, you can lose all of your life. You can lose it for all of eternity. And, and the other way to live is you deny yourself now. You, you say no to yourself now. You renounce yourself now. No longer do your whims and wishes rule your life, but the whims and wishes of God rule your life. The, the, now Jesus is in the, the place of authority, the seat of authority in your life. You're no longer in front of Jesus directing him. He is now in front of you directing you. And, and if you live that way, denying self, letting go of yourself, dying to yourself, picking up your cross, deny, doing all, if you live that way, Here's the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the end, you get everything. Everything you, everything you give up in the path of following Jesus is more than returned in the end. That's the great news. He's saying, that, listen, you give up your life now and you get it all in the end. You, you take your life now and you lose it all in the end. And then he goes to, to verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? And man, th this week reading that, it just brought a real sobriety to me thinking about us. And how seductive the world is. That, that if we're not careful, we will be pursuing 
the world in such a way that we are forfeiting our own soul. And listen, we won't even be aware of it. We won't even be aware of it. Maybe some of us need to hear this this morning. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The rhetorical questions, they're statements in question format. The answer is nothing. You, you can't give anything in return for your soul. You, it profits nothing to gain the world if you lose your soul for all eternity. And then in verse 38, he says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. That there is going to be a day, thank God, where Jesus returns. There is going to be that day. And the Bible, in light of that day, talks a lot about honor and shame. And if, just to summarize it, I think this would be the, the way the Bible talks about it. And I borrowed this from a friend. I think it's just great. But it talks about it like this. You choose one of those now and you get the other one later. So this is how honor and, and shame work. You choose one now and you get the other one later. But here's the catch. The one you wait for is the one you experience for all eternity. The one you wait for is the one you get forever. So, so you can either have honor now, you can either have your own desires now, you can either have a life with God or apart from God now, and, and then you forfeit it for all of eternity. You, you get shame for all eternity. Or you can take shame now, you can deny self now. You can take up your cross, you can follow now. You can put your life in Jesus now. And if you do that, if you take that shame now, you get honor for all eternity. And listen, this is not like a, a spasm of like, you know, I, I didn't honor God in this moment and, oh man, it's shame forever. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, when he talks about like honor and shame, he's talking about a settled disposition. If you're ashamed of me now, if you're living in such a way that your life, the big picture of your life says, I do not love Jesus. I do not care about Jesus. I care about me. If that's the way we're living, he's saying, here's the problem. You're going to get your honor now, but you get shame forever. But if we're living in a way that says, I love Jesus. I am proud of Jesus. I am glad to be counted in, in kind of the, the fray of Jesus. I, I am glad to be in Christ. Th then you get that shame now that comes along with that in this world, and you get honor for all eternity. This, this is the why. And maybe we could just summarize it like this. In light of these hard commands and demands that God makes on us in, in this uh, passage, here's the good news. Jesus has done them all, hadn't he? There's not one of these demands that Jesus has not lived perfectly in, listen, for our sake and to deal with our sin. That he is the, the one who took up his cross and followed his father, even when it cost him his very life. Why? So that you and I could come to the father. So that you and I could be made right with the father. So you and I could enter relationship with the father. And now he looks at you and I and says, this is the kind of savior I am. This is the kind of rescuer. And I'm inviting you in to that sort of a life. And I pray that we'd live it. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.